Well, if you're new and we haven't met, thank you for joining us this morning. As I said, my name's Ryan. I'm our, our youth pastor here at 26 West Church. And you know what? If you've been around for a really long time, it is an honor to be able to share with you this morning. I'm super excited just to dive in and see what God has for us, for our community. Uh, also, if you're new or just sort of jumping back into 26 West Church, we've been in a summer series titled Resilient Faith, looking at characters of the Old Testament and aspects of their faith that can encourage and inspire us today. And what I want to do to just start off this morning is I want to reground us in this concept of resilient faith. What do we mean by that? What is resilient faith? Well, we defined it in this way. It's a posture of our heart, our mind, and our soul to remain steadfast in following Jesus while living in a culture in opposition to that pursuit. And this really is, I think, a timely series. We are typically the kind of church that goes verse by verse through the scriptures. Uh, and to take a pause this summer and sort of say, look, we recognize that we live in a day where the prevailing culture is in opposition to following Jesus. And so what can we learn from those characters in the Old Testament who stayed faithful? What can we see them display as characteristics and things that we want to chase after so that we might remain faithful? Uh, this morning, we're going to look at the book of Esther, and I think we'll see a really similar setting to our own. So let me just paint the picture for you where Esther shows up in the scriptures and, and where it takes place in the story of God's people. Uh, God creates Everything we know in existence creates humanity, uh, and humanity rebels. And God says, you know what, I'm going to partner with this humanity. I'm going to bring about renewal and restoration. And so he works through a specific group of people, trying to bring them through in our earth, in, in the, the surrounding area, to, so that his name would be known. And he, uh, this people is enslaved by the Egyptians. And as you know in the famous story, the Exodus, he rescues them out of that so that they can become their own people in their own land. Uh, and then out of uh, a response to their disobedience, a continued desire to do what they felt was right in their own eyes, God sends them into exile. And in exile, their temple and how and where they could worship God was destroyed in Jerusalem. The Jewish people were taken captive by Babylon. And then if you take this moment and you fast forward 125 years of being captive, exiled, that puts us at the time of the book of Esther. Babylon is no longer in power during Esther's time. In fact, the Persians have taken over and they are the reigning culture of the day, uh, it says in verse 1 of Esther that they, their kingdom is, uh, extends from India to Cush, and Cush was this upper Nile region. It's modern-day Ethiopia. This is the, the largest kingdom of the time. And although the Persians actually gave the Israelites permission to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple, many decided not to. They decided to stay dispersed among the Persian kingdom. And so I just want to make this point as we jump in that living in exile is living in a culture in opposition to following Jesus. 
And so just by nature of the setting of the story, there's a lot that we can learn about what it looks like to live in a culture and a time that's in opposition to that. We are exiles ourselves. <laughs> this idea of exile is actually often overlooked in the scriptures, uh, but it's one that any of us should be able to relate to. Now, most of us are not disconnected from our culture. We're not displaced geographically. But like the Israelites, um, we're, we're not experiencing what they're experiencing. But as followers of Jesus, we should have a healthy longing for eternity, when the dwelling place of God is with man, when he will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. We read this in the end of Revelation, the story, the end of the story, uh, the beginning of eternity. We should have a healthy longing for that as a people of God. But we also have a responsibility, a calling as followers of Jesus to seek welfare even now in our exile. The Bible Project, in a video that they, they put out about exile and that theme in the scriptures, they say this, they, they point out this important posture of exile, explaining that the story of the Bible is about people who had to cultivate a unique identity as God's people while integrating into the dominant cultures that were totally contrary to the kingdom of God. And so we too, 26 West Church, we need encouragement and guidance for how to remain steadfast in following Jesus while living in a culture in opposition to that. And so this morning, let's turn, let's look at the story of Esther, her living in exile, and see what we can learn and pick up from that. So grab your Bible, open it up to Esther. Are you already there? You guys are like on it. Okay, thank you. It's like, you know, overachievers. Um, Here's what we're going to do. Here's the plan. The book of Esther, super profound. It's rich. It's, it's nuanced. It reads like this Shakespearean comedy. It's fast action. Um, and it's often overlooked. I don't, how many of you have read Esther, let's just say, in the last year? That's about three. Oh, no, there's like 10. Okay, well done. Now, most of you are not like me that have read it like 10 times this week, um, but I really think it's a, a book that can teach us a lot about resilient faith. It's still highly regarded in Jewish culture, celebrated and read annually. But I say all that because we're going to fly over it today. I'm going to do my best to sort of like summarize the story and, and what's taking place so we get the full picture. But what I really want to do is key in on a few moments that are really pivotal and I think have something to speak into our lives today. So let's start uh, Esther chapter 1. I'm just going to summarize the entire first chapter and the beginning of chapter 2. So we find ourselves three years into the reign of Xerxes I. He's the king of Persia. He decides to throw this six-month-long lavish party for all of his elites. And the purpose of this, this celebration, so he could, as it says in verse 4, display his vast wealth, the splendor of his glory and majesty. It's clear it's sort of gotten to his head, this reigning as king. So after the end of a 180-day-long party, uh, he hasn't had enough. He extends it another seven days 
He increases the guest list. And now we see that this scene is just complete debauchery. In uh, chapter 1, verse 8, it says this. It says, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions, whatever they wished. Open bar, whatever you want. And in this continuation of sort of the king's flaunting, him, him showing off his wealth and his majesty and his power, he requests the queen's presence so that he might, quote, display her beauty to all of his guests. Now, the queen is like, I'm not having any of that. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not your trophy wife. She refuses, and his advisors suggest she be removed. And they recommend a glorified multi-year beauty pageant so the king can choose a new queen. <laughs> so quite the scene already in just one chapter. And what I want to do is just sort of draw some, some similarities, because I think there's some that are really striking uh, to our own day and culture. Um, it's not often I hear people, and maybe you've thought this, I've thought this myself, but you know, sometimes it's, it's, we struggle with seeing how does the Bible relate to life today? And then you look at something like this, we're only one chapter in, and the connections and the similarities sort of can't be ignored. Uh, this value of power, you know, a, a day doesn't go by without a headline that uh, tells us uh, a story about an abuse of power. I mean, there are a number of them. I just opened the headlines this morning. Or this idea of chasing after wealth or beauty, materialism. It doesn't take long to scroll through an Instagram feed and see people who are focused on chasing after these things, wealth and beauty and, and choice and self-indulgence and pleasure. So the connection's there. The Bible is, is clearly relevant. Uh, there's a British journalist that once said, there's no new news, just old news happening to new people. The Bible says it as there's nothing new under the sun. And so we really need to key in our attention because this is, there is a lot of similarities in what's happening. And so let's look, let's, let's pick up the story in chapter two and let's read starting in verse five. It says this, now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiachin, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who is known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther was ta also taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. She pleased him and won his favor. Immediately, he provided her with beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. And so what's taking place, uh, the king has uh, issued a decree, right? This, this long beauty pageant. He's calling all virgins to his castle. He wants to review their beauty and identify his new queen. And Esther is caught up in this. 
And I want to just catch, because it's easy, that, like I said, this, I, I felt like this story reads like this Shakespearean comedy. It's, it's quick, and, and it's easy to skip over and miss some really poignant details about what's happening. In fact, um, a unique detail of Esther, you know, the uh, name of God is not mentioned once in the whole book. But yet we see God at work all throughout it. And so I think we really got a key into what's happening. Um, one commentary described the book of Esther as, quote, a book of theological inferences rather than plain statements. So when reading through this passage, we're not going to get these details about Esther's behavior. Uh, I can't point to some plain statement or verse where we can see exactly how she lived out her faith in an opposing culture. But if we dig around a bit, I think we can really see something that's powerful and how she responds and how she carries out living in this situation. Um, let me paint the picture here. Some scholars believe Esther is a teenager when this all takes place. How many of you have a middle or high school student in your household right now? Imagine them being swept up into a greedy, perverted king's desire to crown a new queen at just 16 or 14 or 15. Imagine being exiled away from home in the unfamiliar. Uh, when we pick up this story of Esther in verse 1, it says it's the third year of Xerxes' reign. At the end, uh, in, ch in chapter 2, verse 16, when Esther's finally brought before the king, it's the seventh year of his reign. For four years, she's in this moment. A teenage girl in exile, an intimidating and reckless king, four years of waiting, an uncle asking her to keep hidden her nationality and family background, to, to be like living in secret. I mean, this had to be an extremely disorienting and challenging time. And despite all of this, I want us to recognize this key detail. She wins over Haggai. Haggai is this person who's been put in charge of the whole process by the king. Uh, and he is leading who's gonna you know, come before the king and be selected. And it says in verse nine, she pleased him and won his favor. She pleased him and won his favor. The Hebrew word uh, here for favor is hesed, and it's familiar as a covenant word expressing God's faithfulness and love, but in this context, it's used in a secular way. Now, Haggai gave Esther preferential treatment. She's promoted to first place. She's going to get the first shot at becoming queen, and that's by no accident, right? She gets the best attendance, the most attractive quarters. And right away, we should sort of pick up on some of the parallels here of other characters and other moments that we've seen in the Old Testament where we see God's favor bestowed upon someone. Um, in fact, Jose taught in our series about the resilient faith we see in Joseph. Uh, and if you didn't see that, you can check it out on the podcast or YouTube. But I want to just revisit a couple passages from his story because the similarities in language and how we hear of Esther's favor is really striking. Uh, it's talking on the screen. I'll read it for you. You don't need to turn there. But in Genesis 39, verses 2 through 4, it says, The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him 
and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes, and he became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. Joseph's faithfulness to God, his character, earns him the favor of Potiphar, and it sets him on a course. Uh, initially, we, we kind of get, you're kind of thrown off um, just, just a few verses down. In verse 21, Joseph's taken to prison. He's falsely imprisoned. But the favor of the Lord remains with him. It says, uh, the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And so there's something about the favor of the Lord that's on the life of Joseph, even in these difficult circumstances. And here we are, Esther, in this incredibly hard situation, and yet you notice the favor of the Lord is upon her. What is the favor of the Lord? Like I asked myself that this week, what, what is that? How do, how do I receive the favor of the Lord? I want that. <laughs> Who doesn't want the favor of the Lord? The favor of the Lord is mentioned several times in the book of Proverbs. And I want to give you a couple that I think are helpful and uh, are good reminders for us. In Proverbs 3, verse 3 through 4, it says, Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. A few verses down, same proverb, it says, He, the Lord, mocks proud mockers, but shows favor to the humble and the oppressed. We don't, like I said, get the details of Esther and what's happening and how she's carrying out her life in this tough situation. But I get the sense that she's someone maybe that has love and faithfulness. She's humble and she's even oppressed in this situation. But her focus, Joseph, his focus, others in the Old Testament, their focus with the favor of the Lord upon them, notice this one common thread. It's never on themselves. Esther's focus is not about her ascending to become queen. You see, a resilient faith sees God's favor as a means to achieve his will. If you're not taking notes, write that down. And if you are, let's write that down. A resilient faith sees God's favor as a means to achieve his will. The favor bestowed upon Esther, other characters in the Old Testament, the favor that's actually been bestowed upon us, for we all who have said yes to Jesus have it. And we'll dig into that more here in a second. But it's so that God can accomplish his will, his purpose. And in each case that we're looking at here, it's for the benefit of many. Sometimes we can seek God's favor with ulterior motives. I don't know if you've ever done this. Um, I've been like driving down 217. There's this one really big billboard with like the Powerball, you know, and you see that big number and you're like, oh man, all right, God, here's the deal. <laughs> if I win the lottery, like I, I promise God, I, I will give most of it away. I'll, I'll tithe 50% of it. I've, like, I've said these words. <laughs> I'll tithe, that's like five times more than the tithe. What, what amazing work you could do, God, with, you know, me winning the lottery. 
What does James say? He says, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Sure, I may have the slightest heart of like, God, what could we do for your kingdom with like, I don't know, 180 mil, but I'm definitely in the back of my head like, I'm going to buy a beach house and uh, new tr- I'm gonna have a new truck, you know. We can't help, right? I love this. Proverbs 19, verse 21 says, Many are the plans in a person's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. Regardless of our response to God's favor, God's plan will prevail. And so when we're looking at Esther and her faith, I think she sees God's favor as a means to achieve his will. And I think it's something we can learn today. Let's look at the rest of the story. Um, and I'm just going to do, a, again, a quick just sum up. I'm going to take us from two, chapter 2, verse 10, all the way into chapter 4. Just a summary of what, what's happening. So Esther does become queen. She wins the favor of the king. In the same vein, she won the favor of Haggai and others in the harem. And after she becomes queen, we see another moment of God's favor to achieve his purpose. Mordecai learns in a mysterious way, like right time, right place, of this plot to assassinate the king. He tells Esther about it, and she informs the king, and his life is saved. Uh, and, it, and that actually saves Mordecai's life later in the story, just his, his presence in that moment. And then this fast-paced narrative, it, it quickly shifts. All of a sudden, we're introduced to Haman. He's sort of the, um, the, the antithesis in this story, the, the antagonist, right? Um, and, and for whatever reason, um, he's elevated over Mordecai. And we don't know why. It doesn't say, but um, he's exalted to, as it says in verse 1 of chapter 3, this seat of honor higher than that of all other nobles. And so it's this moment where the story's primary conflict really gets set into motion. A benefit of Haman's newfound position is a command from the king that all royal officials kneel and pay honor to him. And again, we don't know why, we don't get the detail, but Mordecai refuses to do this. Now, it could be that he's jealous. You know, remember, he's the one who rescued the king, but then Haman gets exalted into this place, so he could be acting out of jealousy. Or it could be that he uh, does it out of a rejection of idolatry. As a faithful Jew in exile, I'm not going to bow to someone. That would be in opposition to the way of God, to Yahweh. We don't know exactly, but Mordecai refuses, and Haman becomes enraged. In verse 6, it says this, Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Haman doesn't stop at, like, just getting this one guy. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. So Haman brings this to the king, And we already get a picture and have an understanding of sort of how this king operates, right? Throwing 180-day-long drinking parties and flaunting around his power and wealth. He he hardly considers what's taking place. 
And so pretty quickly, Haman uh, informs him of this guy and, and this, this people group that's in his kingdom. And, and a decree is suddenly made to, quote, destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children throughout the kingdom. And then it says this, the end of, I think it's the end of chapter 3, quote, the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. I mean, even the people are like, what in the heck is going on? Who is this king that is ruling over us? It says their own people, the Persians, are like, what is going on? And yet Mordecai and the Jewish people, they're devastated. This, this is a death sentence. This is genocide. This is Germany. This is Nazi Germany at power. I mean, this is the same type of thing. We have to like grasp the gravitation of that. They are faced with certain death. And so what does Mordecai do? In crisis, he cries out before God. He goes into mourning, lamenting, weeping, even fasting. And here we see that a resilient faith responds to crisis by seeking God. A resilient faith responds to crisis by seeking God. Now, we can all learn from this, but I, above most, am on trial here. I love personality assessments. I feel like they offer a lot of insight and encouragement and wisdom. And there's some that I have really tapped into and learned a lot about who I am and how I'm wired. And one of them describes me as, quote, one who avoids pain at all costs. How many of you can relate with that? <laughs> I think most Americans can relate to that. But we simply can't do that as followers of Jesus. Jesus actually warns us. He warns his disciples, and it's a warning for us as well. In John 16, he says, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And this is super encouraging. We quote it all the time, like, take heart, Jesus has overcome the world. But it doesn't take away the trouble. The trouble still comes. The trouble is still there. Paul is even more blunt. In 2 Timothy 3, verse 12 through 13, he says, indeed, all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil men and imposters go from bad to worse deceiving and being deceived. How many of you would say you desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus? I hope every single one of your hands is up. <laughs> I absolutely desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. But it says this, all who desire. I love telling, I just think this is funny, but really simple thing that we do as students to teach them um, the ancient languages of the scriptures. Sometimes we'll key in on simple words like this, and I'll say, hey, what do you think it means here in the Greek? How do you think we translate the word all in the Greek here? It means all. <laughs> it's all of us. All who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And it goes from bad to worse. Boy. <laughs> The essence of this Resilient Faith series recognizes that we live in a culture in opposition to following Jesus. 
And so we must look to God for guidance. We must go to God and seek him, lamenting, mourning, weeping, fasting, and praying. Instead, we can become experts at distraction and avoidance. Well, maybe you aren't, but I am. <laughs> Look, the last year and a half, I feel like I've heard a lot of things like, I can't wait to get back to normal. Or cancel 2020. I mean, we put on um, entire petitions to expunge a whole year from the record books. I'm ready to move on. I'm, o I'm over it. <laughs> And I get it. This is a, a challenging time. And, and I'm not trying to make light of those who have faced some pretty difficult circumstances, loss of job or loss of loved one. But maybe God has made us for this moment. I don't see Mordecai looking to get out or escape. I see him turning to God and seeking guidance, seeking his face. Fasting is a really beautiful thing where we carve out everything in our life to 100% focus our attention on God. We need to seek God's face. I read this, um, you know, one really helpful practice if you don't do this already as a follower of Jesus is to be in his word daily. A resilient faith, certainly um, in seeking God in, in, the, in the face of crisis, goes to his word. We need his word every day. And so in my own just devotional practice of reading this week, uh, I read this psalm that I thought really tied in well. It's uh, from Psalm 62, verse 8. It says, trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. Mordecai and the Jewish people are pouring out their heart to God. In fasting, they're completely focusing their attention on him. And not just for strength and courage, but for insight and guidance. God, what do we do? How do we respond to what's taking place, this incredibly impossible situation? And it's here that we reach the climax of the story what is typically the most well-known passage in verses in, in Esther. So let me just sum up the, the, the first part of chapter four, what's taking place, and then we'll jump back in. Uh, so, so basically, Mordecai, super distressed. He's wailing and weeping and lamenting and fasting. He's calling people to this. And Esther hears about this. And through a messenger, she asks him, like, what's going on? And, um, and Mordecai is like, this is a death sentence. Like, we are in trouble, Esther, and we need your help. You are the queen. You are in power. We need you to go before the king. And let's pick up the story in chapter 4, verse 9, and, and start reading. The messenger that's been going back and forth between Esther and Mordecai, his name is Hathak, and he says this, he, he goes back, he reports to Esther what Mordecai had said, that you need to go to the king. Uh, and she instructed him to say to Mordecai, look, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, 
that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, most of you maybe know this one, who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I, my, I and my attendants will fast as you do. And when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. And so Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. So here's Esther, maybe late teens, early 20s, faced with um, saving her people and the cost is risking potential death herself. And I love Mordecai's faith. Let's, let me not brush over that. Um, Mordecai recognizes that it may in fact have been God at work this whole time, orchestrating the events that have led up to this moment. In fact, I, <laughs> I wrote a whole other teaching about God at work in the unseen moments of Esther. <laughs> because there's a ton that's going on here. Um, Mordecai, he recognizes what's happening to call out this moment before Esther. He also displays an unwavering faith that regardless of Esther's response, God will rescue his people. Look, God is faithful to his work, to his work of renewal and rescue in the world. He's faithful to this people in this story because it's out of this people that our savior is gonna come into this world. Mordecai knew that God would continue working regardless of how Esther responded. And, and these are both incredible lessons that we can learn from him. Seeing God at work in the unseen, recognizing he's at work even when we don't see it or recognize it, and responding in faith that God will act. But I really want to key in on what Esther's response is because I really think it's an important word for our church, for 26 West today. You see, a resilient faith isn't just about remaining Christian in a culture that isn't. Hear that again. A resilient faith isn't just about remaining Christian in a culture that isn't Christian or isn't following Jesus. A resilient faith recognizes and accepts the invitation to take part in the rescue and renewal efforts of God. A resilient faith recognizes and accepts the invitation to take part in the rescue and renewal efforts of God. Just as, is, as Esther was in place for this moment, I have to believe that we are in place for this moment. There's a reason that we've been placed in the situations and the scenarios that we find ourselves in. 
that we as a people of God, that we as the church, 26 West Church and the Hillsborough Corridor have been placed here in this physical space and region during a time of crisis and challenge and tribulation. And how will we respond to that? Let me summarize the story. I want to wrap up so that you get the full picture, and then let's talk about that. So it's a happy ending. It's a happy Disney ending, right? Everyone's saved. Um, Esther's received well by the king. Haman's plot is reversed, as is his position <laughs> uh, with Mordecai. Mordecai is exalted, and Haman's executed. Um, the Jewish people throughout the kingdom, they're rescued. And a new day of celebration is instituted. It's called the celebration of Purim. It's sort of this play on the fact that Haman, when he's trying to decide the moment when the Jews will be destroyed, he casts this lot, or what's called the Purim. And so the Jews, in this sort of epic reversal, decide to have a celebration of Purim one that's instituted in the moment of, of Esther coming out of this. It's one that's still celebrated today. Like I said, they, they read the book and they celebrate God delivering them. And so my question sort of to, to get us into this response and, and how we're going to respond to what I think God's saying to all of us today, myself included, is what will our celebration be? How will we look back and celebrate the part that we played and, and the role that we took in partnering with God to rescue a people. You know, there are many moments in history that have completely reshaped life as we know it, specifically as the people who lived during and through those moments knew it. And some of them, when you think about them, have had, you know, a greater magnitude of change and reflection uh, than others. Most of us, uh, we grew up reading about world wars or the depression or, or other major historical events where people often emerged with a completely different mindset and approach to life. Now, prior to COVID, the one that I think most of us can easily recall or the one that really resonates with my generation is September 11th. You know, there are numerous studies and articles on the effects that September 11th had on, a, on our society and on culture as a whole. But already that feels like a lifetime ago. You know, the last year and a half have completely captivated and demanded our attention. And COVID is, a, it's, a, it's a compound moment in history. Uh, we're all aware of all these other subplots that it could have been just as catalyzing a moment in history on their own. And so how are we as the church, 26 West Church, how, are, how is the, the broader Capital C Church, how are we going to respond to this moment? This moment's no surprise to God, this moment in history. And as we see in the story of Esther, God was at work behind the scenes, dramatically working in and through his people to bring about his will. And what's his will in that moment? It's to rescue a people. I'm gonna go back to that idea of favor, right? God's favor was on Esther. And through this, his faithfulness to his people prevailed. And I wanna say God's favor is on us. 
Maybe you're here this morning and you're like, man, it doesn't feel like it. In Luke chapter 4, verse 18 through 19, I'm going to read this. It's uh, the moment when Luke tells of Jesus first coming on the scene. It's his first sort of moment of unveiling. He enters this synagogue and he, he grabs the scroll of Isaiah and he teaches from it. And it says, in the power of the Spirit, he reads. I love that. This is what he reads out. He, he's quoting from the book of Isaiah. It says this, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This was prophetic. Um, the year of the Lord's favor was a metaphor for the year of Jubilee. This was a Jewish practice of total release, canceling all debts, um, freeing all slaves, relieving all enemies. This is a beautiful picture in, in the Old Testament. And Jesus is proclaiming this as a metaphor for time, saying this year, this moment of the, the Lord's favor is starting now. And it's starting now in me. In me, there is freedom, canceling of debts, rescuing of the oppressed. And I love that this picture, this picture that Jesus institutes of salvation, his, his favor, our favor is Jesus. And we have a lot to learn about recognizing that that favor is not just for ourselves, it's to achieve God's purpose, his will. Remember, a resilient faith sees God's favor as a means to achieve his will. And what is his will? It says in, uh, in the book of Timothy, I think it's 2 Timothy, it says, his will is that all people be saved and come to know a knowledge of the truth. So a resilient faith is never about self-preservation. It's joining in with God's rescue plan. It's an invitation. In Jesus' parting words to the disciples, he says to them in Acts he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witness in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So Esther was raised up for quote, such a time as this. And as followers of Jesus, I think we need to see that we've been raised up for such a time as this. We've been bestowed with his favor to achieve his will. And so we should seek to God to determine what he has for us. Who are the people that God is seeking to rescue through us? Who, who are the people that God is inviting us into, into that process? You know, for me in my own journey, um, you know, I don't know if you know, but I worked at Nike for about seven years. And so I, I felt committed to like, well, how do I do that at Nike? My wife and I started a community there of, of Jesus followers who were Nike employees who sought to rescue a, a people, the people that were, that were before us. Um, and we did our best <laughs> to be obedient to God and, and to trust that he was at work in that. 
And now in this season of life I'm in now, it's these young people. I'm praying that God would bring these young people through our doors and that he would rescue them and that, I, that I, I'm saying yes to that invitation to be a part of that. I met with a young student this week that has a really difficult background. And, uh, and I think God wants to rescue him. I know God wants to rescue him. I know that's his will. What about you? What's your story? What, what's, what role are you to play? God's created you for such a time as this. And there is a crisis going on and people are looking to be rescued. And God is inviting you in and he's gonna do it whether or not you say yes. And so I invite you to, to be a part of that story because it's incredible. It's an incredible thing that we get to do. Um, I'll end with this. I heard this uh, hymn this week. I, I, don't, I don't know a lot of hymns. Uh, I think it was uh, written in the early 80s. But it's a beautiful hymn that I think really captures the heart posture and response that we should take to this, that we should take to God's invitation. So let me just read it over you now. Why don't you close your eyes, we're gonna wrap up and, and just listen to these words. Maybe even as you're doing that, um, maybe some people are coming to your mind. A family member, a neighbor, a coworker, you know, who, who are the people in your life that you're confident God is, we know, we know God's will is to try and rescue them. He is in the business of rescue and renewal. We know as God's people, we're invited into that. But who is he calling you to, to play a part in that? Let this be your response to the invitation. Yes, Lord, yes, to your will and to your way. Yes, Lord, yes, I will trust you and obey. When your spirit speaks to me with my whole heart, I'll agree. And my answer will be yes. My answer will be yes. My answer will be yes, Lord, yes.